six-year-old uh like lost it absolutely lost it like pushing me over and like at one point I think his feet were on the wall shoving me backwards like no I'm not gonna do it and then he uh he went finally it took three nurses and me holding him down to give him this COVID booster and then afterwards we get out to the car and you know what he says well, that was fun. <laughs> it was like, are you kidding me? That was that was fun. That's I'm that's fun for who? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. We are we are here with James Gourlay. Um, and you don't know this, but this is our second take on this episode unintentional return guest (laughs) our first first return guest unintentionally (laughs) we we recorded a fantastic episode we're really happy with it um and then some um fluke with zoom meant that um the recording did not actually record um and there was nothing we could do about it Uh, i've never heard of that happening so here we are again um, hopefully we can, we can get, but you know, every time I'm with James, I mean, we have a great time and, um, he is such a wealth of knowledge and experience that even if we were to record a totally different episode, I'm sure it would still be awesome. So, um, if you haven't heard of James Gourlay, first off, you've been, you've been living under a rock, but, um, James Gourlay is the musical director at River City Brass Band, and he's the director of bands and conductor at Duquesne and works with the tubas and euphoniums. So welcome, James. Thanks for coming back again. <laughs> it's a great pleasure to see you again. I didn't think I'd see you so soon, but it's a great pleasure to do so. Right. So um, you are the musical director at River City Brass Band. Can you tell, uh, tell us a little bit about that ensemble um, and what you're up to? Sure. Uh, we were founded in 1981 by Robert Bernat, who was a clarinet player he had a Fulbright scholarship to go and study brass bands in the, in Great Britain. And he went to Sheffield's and met the Grimethorpe Colliery Band, survived that experience and, uh, <laughs> and brought back uh, brass bands to Pittsburgh, thinking that Pittsburgh being a steel town, just like Sheffield, it might be fertile ground uh, to have brass band music. It might appeal to a blue collar audience. And it really did, it took off and uh, the uh, organization has expanded and expanded since then. And we're, I think, the only professional, full-time professional brass band in the country. Uh, musicians have a full-time uh, per-service per contract every year uh, with a guaranteed minimum of services. It means that every rehearsal and every concert, they get money. An incredible <laughs> concept for brass bands. Yeah. And, uh, we are certainly the only uh, brass band, I think, in the world that has a regular subscri- subscription series. We have 
um, around five to six thousand regular subscribers, and they buy our um, five monthly concerts in the in the subscription series. Sometimes we have seven monthly concerts in the in the series. And uh, how we work is that we we work project based. That means every month there's a a new title, a new theme, and uh, we have three rehearsals, sometimes four if there's choreography or something like that to do. And then we do five concerts in various venues around Pittsburgh. And we have a little rest and then we do the same the following month. And we do that uh, from November, December, and then March, April, May. Uh, Pre-COVID, we did September, October, November, November, but the audiences are not coming back quite in the numbers that we need uh, to keep the ship afloat. So we've curtailed the season just a wee bit to, to make ends meet. And well, as you can hear from my accent, I'm not Scottish for nothing. Um, <laughs> as far as money's concerned, we're a very prudent race and uh, the business is doing, despite COVID, the business is doing pretty well. Great, so um, what are some of the things that you've been doing? I know that that a lot of bands are are facing this issue of audiences only slowly coming back after COVID. What are what are some things that that River City Brass Band has done, and what are some things that you um, that you would, if you could give advice to some of the brass bands um, on coming back? Yeah, what are your thoughts on that? Well, the audience the audience is pretty fickle, and you know, around Western Pennsylvania, there are there aren't any. Uh, really a lot of amateur brass bands that would come because we play brass instruments. So we are appealing to an audience that might go and see a Broadway show, an audience that might go to see the symphony pops. So it's all down to the programming. And so, for example, I, I never play a brass band test piece in a concert, never, uh, because I want the person who bought a ticket to buy another one for another concert and, and mostly those are pieces, however high quality they might be, and they are high quality. Um, they they don't appeal to people outside of our genre. We we understand the difficulties and we're impressed by that. But the average person that just likes a good tune doesn't, and so they they can be switched off very easily from that. So the program is everything. I think thematic programming is something that you can market and sell. Uh, you can also build a very second a very satisfactory program around an idea, a theme. Even if you step out of that theme once or twice in the evening, uh, there's a kind of red line that, that goes through the show. Um, so uh, we're opening, in fact, our first rehearsal is tonight for a show that we're calling Les Mis Anat, because in Pittsburgh, Pittsburghese, they're always saying Anat at the end of sentences and that, you know, and. Uh, you know, the, the pirates are not doing very well in that, and the Steelers don't have an offense in that. And so that's that's a great that's a that's a Pittsburgh thing that and at so it's got Lee Miz. And one of the things that's unique, I think, about River City Brass compared with other brass bands is that we have singers that play brass instruments, we have dancers that play brass instruments. So we can actually put on a, sh a mini show within the show. So our our you know what one of our cornet players is going to be singing. Uh, master of the house we have another corner player singing you know uh, all of the songs so it's a, it's a sung event as well as a played event uh, in the same show we have uh, you know really popular things that the audience which after all isn't generally the youngest audience in the world uh, my fair lady uh, chicago 
uh, Candide Overture, West Side Story. So this is a very much a Broadway, aimed at a Broadway show-loving uh, audience. Uh, and that's, you know, that's going to be as hard a show as any test pieces. You play two test pieces for 15 minutes, that's going to be hard. You come to one of my River City shows, you're going to be playing technically difficult music, but fun music for the listener to listen to for nearly two hours. That's a big difference right there. Yeah. And so I would say to brass bands, if you want people to come to your concerts, make your concerts entertaining, make them fun, make them engaging so that the, the people feel that they're not just consuming your music, but they are uh, part of that experience. I know people talk about the experience word a lot. They throw it around, but, you know, some symphony concerts are hardly an experience. You know, you go sit there, you consume the music of dead German composers <laughs> and, and hardly any female composers. And you can we can change that because we we choose the music that we play. So that's what I would advise. And then use what what marketing media you can, you know. And that's all down to budget. But use the social media platforms as much as you can. Uh, even the TikTok, we are on TikTok at River City Brass. Use the younger, you know, the formats that the younger people are using. You know, Facebook is for oldies and Instagram and TikTokers for, for younger folks. So use all of those and engage with a wider public and, and make sure your ticket prices aren't too expensive and and you'll, yeah. And then it's still a crapshoot to use an Americanism whether <laughs> the folks will turn up. I mean, we, we buy the sides of buses to put our adverts on. We spend money on TV ads. Uh, we spend a lot of our budget on marketing. And uh, we're lucky enough to have money, some money to spend on marketing. Um, but if you haven't got that, use the social that's, use the social media platforms. That's what I would say. So do you have a staff that like creates all that sort of stuff, or is that all you? Are you the one making the Instagram posts and all that? Yeah, we have we have a, a small staff. We have a small office staff. Apart from the twenty eight musicians that we have. Um, I'm apart from the artistic director. I'm the general director. That means general dog's body, basically. <laughs> and uh, uh, up here on this floor with me, I have uh, two operations managers. I have a director of development who who brings in the funds that we can spend, and I have uh, a marketing uh, manager. And so we all have those functions. We print our own tickets. We do the marketing. We do the artwork. We have someone who comes in part time and does our graphics. Uh, so we do everything in-house. When we make a CD, we edit that in-house. We do the graphics for that in-house, and then we send it out to disc makers, for example, um, to put it either on a CD or lately we've been using thumb drives that we sell at the concerts because who has a CD player in the car anymore? Oh. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. I don't. <laughs> I, could more, I have more readily available to me a vinyl player than I do a disc drive. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like, we get the River yeah. City uh, limited release vinyl for the next album. <laughs> well, that's a good point because we've actually had customers ask ask us for vinyl, but um, we see that they're quite expensive to, to press still. But yeah. Um, yeah, it's something we're thinking of because, you know, the CD, we sell them at the concerts and uh, I sell them. I, I say to people, you know, after you've burned them onto your computer, they make wonderful wine coasters. <laughs> <laughs> exactly <laughs> right i don't even have a i don't even have a cd drive like on my computer no i have a record player in the basement um it's, but it's i such a problem too because like i feel like 
especially a brass band, but just art music in general has really, and it, it's just, be, I mean, you're getting, when you stream one song on Spotify, where are you getting 0.000435 of a cent per stream? I don't know. I got, I, I, I know that I got paid seven cents from Spotify. So, yeah. you so know. Like, they're still doing the physical <laughs> media type thing. And um, I'm, 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 this is my doctoral research, so this is why I'm, I'm so hot on it. Um, and it's so interesting because, like, especially here in North America, right, a big problem is, like, for instance, if I wanted to get a reference recording of personal variations, there's that recording, I think, by Grimethorpe, I think. Um, but there's a reference recording that I can order from, like, JustMusic.uk or anything like that. But then I have to wait six months for it to get in, <laughs> to get shipped across the seas. And then I have to find a disk drive, rip it, and then give it to my band as a reference recording. Mm -hmm. um, all that for, like, some... And because we, we just haven't embraced the, like, the digitalness so much. But I also understand why we haven't embraced the digitalness as much either. Yeah. And it, But it seems extremely frustrating because with, like, wind band it seems to be more readily available in the United States. And we're, that, that's a point that we're still having a problem with, I think here with brass band in North America. So you guys play, you know, you were saying you're about to do a lot of, you know, musical arrangements and stuff like that. Do you have a, a staff arranger for some of the more odd things or do you arrange things or a little this and that? Yeah. All of the above. Uh, we, yeah. uh, we have a great, uh, we, we wouldn't call him a staff arranger. He's one of our musicians. Drew Fennell, he's a fantastic composer and arranger. He does some for us, and uh, mostly uh, I do the rest. So, for example, today I'm doing a song, The Lullaby of Broadway, for because we have a singer in the show singing that is the, in the Ella Fitzgerald um, version of it. And what I do is I, I I listen to the track and take it down as dictation. And if it's a big band, I have a way of putting the saxes onto the flugel. We have French horns, two baritones, two euphoniums. That that takes over my, that takes over mostly, depending on the baritone sax part, how low that is, that takes care of my saxophones. And uh, usually the big band has four trumpet parts, so I can equally divide those, um, leaving the soprano out from just the high stuff, so that, because the soprano coordinate doesn't have a, doesn't have the power of the B flat cornet or the B flat trumpet, and uh, so I can I can replicate that sound. Four trombones in the big band. What I do, I will have three trombones, and I'll put I'll double a baritone on one of the parts, and I have a second baritone play the inner parts. So you can cover all those parts quite easily. But um, it's that's a labor of love when you're doing it as a dictation. Um, but if it's big band, it's a bit easier than one of our shows, which is a Bollywood meets Hollywood where um, we have uh, Indian music from from the Bollywood movies like Jai Ho and other ones. And uh, that that show took a lot of putting together because you can imagine there's no sheet music that you can get from India that helps you tell, tells you what they're doing. So I just listened to it and uh, a billion times, that's with a B, and, and <laughs> write it down barf by bar. So, so much the case that I even, I even have learned the Hindi words for some of the songs like this. Mira Juta Hai Japani, Mi Patloon Hindistani. And we have Indian singers in the show, and I cue them in Hindi, and they say, wow, you can speak Hindi. No, I can't. No, but I listened to that song seven billion times, so I could take it down as a dictation. 
Hey, it's topical. <laughs> Diwali was just this past Monday. What was that? Diwali was just this past Monday, so it's, it's it, topical. It was. <laughs> I I live in a in a neighborhood that's probably I don't know, like a quarter Hindu, um, and we're right next to uh, I think I think it's the largest Hindu temple in Columbus. Um, so. Sure. The third night of Diwali is like the 4th of July around here, and there are fireworks going off please, everywhere. Please, please give me the address, or uh, and I'll get in touch with them and see if we can do a, a Bollywood show in Columbus. <laughs> that would be great. That, that'd be exciting. So my, my wife is Hindu, um, and, so her, and so is her whole family. So, like, yeah, if you put that on a CD, we're absolutely buying it. That way I can get <laughs> my, my in-laws to come to my concerts. Yeah, there's a brass band that does those things. You can come to my brass band, too. <laughs> it's, it's pretty cool. We have uh, we have a couple of tabla players in the show, a couple of Indian singers, uh, uh, usually a, a male and a female. And then you can do some of the more poppy numbers, like Shorty uh, Tiasha, which is a, a girl's song um, that, yeah, if your wife's interested, I can I can give give you some tracks that. Would have you ever watched one of those movies like, in full, like from? Oh yeah, I have to watch them to know um, it's where like, the songs, the context. It's like of every the song. genre of movie in a movie. Yeah. Like it's a musical, it's an action, it's a romance, it's a drama, like it's everything. And in don't, a forget hour span. don't forget yeah. dance. Don't forget. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And yeah. They, like you need an intermission for the movie because it's as long as a Wagner opera. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they might I, I well have them. They might well have intermissions in the in the movie houses. I would not surprise me. I wanted to I wanted to call attention to something that you said like really quickly in passing that I that I tell my students all the time. You watched the movie because you wanted to learn about the context of the pieces that you were playing. Yeah. I can't tell you how many times I've been work I've I've worked with a student and they're working on like an aria transcription or something that has lyrics to it. I say, what, what is this song about? I don't know. <laughs> How are you well, going to play it? How do you know? Well, I had a, I had a, an amazing teacher looking back. He was called Mr. Ross. And Mr. Ross was the school janitor in my elementary school, as we call primary school in Scotland. And he came around the classrooms with some old beaten instruments from the village band. Uh, and there was a teacher accompanying him. And he said, you know, they said they're looking for volunteers to start the school band. Uh, hands up who wants to be in the band. No hands went up. None. Really? But the teacher said, we thought this would, might happen. So here is a list of the volunteers. And uh, <laughs> until that weekend, this was a Monday morning, until that weekend, I'd been the goalie for the school football team, but I had let that's our kind of football, the soccer team. And uh, I had let in 10 goals. So I think I think probably that's why I was moved from goalkeeper <laughs> to band. And uh, well, Mr. Ross lined us all up in order of height, and I was the tallest one. So I got a two, I got, well, I got a B-flat bass at first, yeah, a small B-flat bass. We had a lesson every night after school. And um, this is something I don't think exists anymore. We, we had slow melody and air vary competitions every week, every every weekend, uh, under really? 12s division, and then 12s to 18, and then 18 and adults. And um, so, in the slow melody, just to come to your point, this is uh, Mr. Ross used to used to complain if he couldn't hear the words, 
if we were playing a song, if we were playing the lost chord, for example, you know, seated one day at the organ, comma. Yeah. I was comma. Uh, if he couldn't hear that punctuation, he used to go absolutely mad. And uh and he he, he would occasionally hit hit one on the on the knuckles with a stick if he played if he played a long <laughs> over this. No good. It's, I'm not recommending this, but I'll tell you it does focus the mind, particularly if you go home and, and say, Oh, Mr. Ross hit me with a stick. Why did you do that? Well, I played the wrong note. You played the wrong note. What were you thinking? <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, what different times we lived in. <laughs> I, I have to say, I'm I'm really quite glad that my band director did not line us up by height to assign us instruments because my instrument would have been quite different. <laughs> yeah, I'd be I'd be piccolo for sure. <laughs> yeah, so I think, and now I have, um, for example, I was working with. A, a very talented euphonium student of mine, Nathan Myers. He's he's won various competitions around the country, and he's 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 ready. He's ready to be, you know, a springboard into the bigger time. And we were working on Carmen's uh, the the flower song from from Carmen, and so that he could get the the nuances. Because I speak French, I was trying to get him to speak speak the words in French. The difference that that made. To his interpretation of the song was incredible and he had a recital the other day at the, the pittsburgh chamber music society which is a a big deal because they have a competition to win a spot in their series and that's a competition against all instruments and uh, when you think that they've only been th in the 80-year history of that organization there have been three euphonium players who have managed to win that um uh, Matt, Matthew Murchison was one, uh, mm -hmm. Fern Fernando Dedos was the other, and now Nathan Myers. I'm pleased to say that all three have had connections uh, to Duquesne University. Yeah, yay. <laughs> In the eight-year history. But it's, it's a big deal for a euphonium player, you know, to beat off the violins and the cellos and things like that and be taken seriously. He played a very challenging program, but the thing that got the people on, on their feet clapping and shouting bravo the flower song from Carmen. It just goes to show that, you know, if you if you have something in your program that the people already know and can relate to, it can touch them in a way. It might even take them back in time to uh, a time when they were younger, when they were, you know, growing up, when they were meeting their loved ones, when they were getting married. So, for example, when we do our Glenn Miller show, which we do a Glenn Miller show, we have a, a gentleman who's in his 90s comes to our concerts. And um, we played, of course, you have to play Pennsylvania 65000. But of course, it's nothing to do with Pennsylvania. It's to do with the Pennsylvania Hotel in New York City. That was the telephone number. And this gentleman comes to me and says, I was in the first performance of that at the Pennsylvania Hotel. Oh, this yeah. is, yeah, it, it took, I went, <laughs> it's like somebody <laughs> that was in the first performance of Beethoven 9. <laughs> this is like unbelievable and and he he said oh thanks for playing that because it really took me back it took me down a journey on down memory lane mm -hmm. you see music has the power to touch people in a way that a test yeah. person can so that coming back to your advice to get people into and to get them to stay in your concerts um play music that that people know already and that, and it'll it'll take them on a nostalgia trip.
for sure. And of course, once you've got them there, you can introduce them to other music. So for example, last, last season, we had a composer's competition and uh, it meant that we ended up choosing winners uh, whose music was very different from the type of music that we normally play. And to engage the public, I asked the public to vote. There was the, the audience voted for the winner. They chose a great piece by, by Andrew Wainwright which sounds like a piece of brass band music, not the kind of music we normally play, which is, you know, Broadway show and big band. And uh, the, we asked also the audience to comment on the pieces, to, to critique the, the, the pieces. And the responses were amazing sometimes. So the, the depth of the, of, well, I wouldn't say not, they weren't knowledgeable people, but the, their comments were so, appropriate to the, the pieces that we're playing. So that's the other thing I would say to people, don't underestimate your audience, don't play down to them. They're not there to be educated. They are educated. They already are. Right, they're, 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 they're entertained. They want to be entertained. Yeah, it's a night out, you know. I mean, imagine you, you take your wife for a night out, you have a glass of wine, you go into a place and someone reads the encyclopedia, Wikipedia page one to you. Uh, that's a bit <laughs> dull, isn't it? It really is. That would be a bit dull. So you're hardly ever going to go back to that, you know, like the man who broke his leg in four places and goes to the doctor and the doctor says, well, don't go to those places anymore. <laughs> That's the episode, folks, and we're done. <laughs> so let's talk about uh, River City's instrumentation and, and seating setup. We talked about this on um, on the previous episode and we had a lot of cool things, a lot of interesting thoughts and, and we kind of got into the nitty gritty about, um, about balance and blend and theories on, on how to do this stuff and brass band history. I thought it was a really meaty topic that I think our listeners would be interested in. Um, so can you tell us a little bit about River City and and your instrumentation and setup? Sure. Well, we don't have any alto horns, tenor horns, um, but we do have uh, the, the usual brass band instruments like cornets. Uh, the E-flat soprano cornet we have, we replaced with an E-flat trumpet because they, we found the intonation to be better. Because we don't do any competitions um, and there's no NABBA rules or rules like that to follow, we can do more or less what we like and um, we we do we are using E flat and B flat tubers uh, the B flat tubers are huge German massive things the E flats are Bessons um, we find that that works best we tried F's and C tubers but uh, the F's were just a bit weak com compared with some of the other you know with the E flats that we're using now uh, we have three trombones we have two euphoniums two baritones we have uh, we have three French horns, one frugal horn, um, and we have three percussionists. So it's a bit like a British brass band. When when Bernat came back from the UK, he tried to form a British brass band, but he couldn't find anybody to play the tenor horn. He simply replaced those three instruments um, with French horns. Now, that that's a challenge. When I arrived at um, the River City about 11, 12 years ago, they were seated in a normal British style with a, you know, if I'm looking at the band, there'll be two rows of cornets and then flugel and horns, then euphoniums and baritones, trombones and tubas at the back and then percussion even further back. Mm -hmm. So if you have a French horn, 
it points backwards. So if you're if you're in the middle looking forwards, your instrument is pointing backwards. So that's immediate, immediately a no-no. Uh, and when you think of most modern concert halls, even old concert halls, are not designed around brass bands, they're designed, designed around symphony orchestras. Symphony orchestras have instruments that point out, all the wind and brass point forward. And the acoustic of the hall is is designed for that. And we can talk about that to the cows come home from the Musikverein Saal in Vienna to the latest modern concert hall, an orchestra sits there with the trumpets and the trombones pointing forward. Uh, so I decided to try something that I'd already tried in the UK uh, and which is to have, if I'm looking at the band now from the middle, the cornets are in a semicircle going from the soprano right round to what you would normally call the third corner. So the third corner is going to be on my right. So the corners are right and literally front and center. And that gives a vibrancy to the sound, which is in really incredible. It gives it much more color. And if you have really good players on what you would normally call the second and third corner parts, for want of a better name, we still use that. You can, you can then have two groups of cornets and use them antiphonally. They can play against each other, play a phrase there, pass that across the board. So you're using the stereo picture quite a bit. Then on that second semicircle, it starts with the flugelhorns on the edge. That's handy for us because he's also one of our singers and he's a great jazz soloist and a great, just great all-round musician. So he can just walk to the front of the stage without having to climb over anybody. That's really practical. But then we found with the French ones, because they sit like this, we've, we can get more sound with them being on that edge. However, the tenor horn's even better on that side because if it's facing that way, the bell is going to go out. Right. So if you listen to most brass bands, I, I, I always think it's a bit like a, it's a bit like a British donut. Like there's nothing in the middle as a whole. Mm -hmm. And then you're asking the tenor horn players to blast like hell just to be able, just to balance up the band. Those middle harmonies get lost because it, I mean, hey, I'm going no, I'm going to get I know I'm going to get emails about this, but you know you asked me on, so I'm going to tell you. <laughs> you asked a question. <laughs> the, 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 the alto horn is a weak instrument compared with the cornet. It's a weak instrument compared with the euphonium. The baritone is a weak instrument compared with the cornet and the euphonium. This is a fact. And if people blow them a lot, then they become edgy and horrible, uh, which is not really its its function. And if you go right back to the the origins of those instruments, even Adolf Sachs thought they were inferior to the who invented them. They were inferior to other uh, other of his, his other instruments. So there's a problem. But the, the solution, I think, stick them on the edge. They're facing out. You'll hear them immediately. You'll hear them very, very colorfully. And uh, it, it certainly works for us. I tried it at Grimethorpe when I was music director there. I tried it at Brickhouse. Um, but of course I came and it was fantastic. We'd get some great concerts and uh, people came up and said, wow, the band sounds amazing, the colors, and we can hear all the instruments and it's, a, it's an amazing thing. But of course then, you know, that's Saturday and it's a special concert, maybe at a festival. And on the next Tuesday rehearsal, we're playing the first, we're, we're thinking that we're back to the first opening number of Fiddler on the Roof. Tradition, tradition. <laughs> 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 so, 
the musicians complain, well, we don't want to do that forever. And, and then they're worried about the contest, you know, what the judges think. Well, and I think the judges might like to hear the, the tenor horns a bit. Yeah. They might. So yeah, I would recommend yeah. try, I would recommend trying it. I think I think you'll remember that I tried it at Atlantic once. And uh, yeah. it, it made an incredible difference. But probably after I went away that weekend, you reverted. Somebody pressed the default button. <laughs> yeah, it was, uh, you know, we we tried it. I think we stayed there for a few rehearsals. And uh, I think I think that that was a, a moment, though, for the band, because they they started asking themselves. It, it was we had we had the tradition we had the the old setup that we defaulted to but from that point on there were times that we we would play a particular piece and we'd think you know this setup might work better if we did fill in the blank mm -hmm. and we switched it up and so yeah. it wasn't necessarily the setup that you had set us up in but but we thought of, you know, this piece would work better with this. And so it opened up a whole, a whole thing of experimentation. I think Atlantic does a lot with setting up the, the cornets standing behind. Yeah. Um, the, so, so we would kind of reverse the rows so that the corn, the cornets would, the cornets would, would kind of, um, go over the over the top of the others of the, yeah. the what would be the inside row and when we did brass in concert there were, we were I think we were in that modified in your setup or or I think we modified that setup um, because we we were doing I think we were doing some some I forget what it was but it was like it, we were we were seriously rocking out <laughs> so I think they put the euphoniums on the end so that we could pump it out and yeah. that would Im impact the sound and make it heavier. Yeah. Um, so it was your setup, but but that reverse with the cornets along the back. Sure. Um, I think it looks more visually. Definitely does. Yeah. Yeah. Um, with the bells all lined up. Um, and so yeah, I think that that was a that was a moment of of realizing that we don't have to do this. So while the defaults stayed that way, hmm. it really did open the door. That's good. I'm glad I opened that particular can of worms. That's great. And uh, I would recommend to all bands, just try different setups and see what makes your band sound. I remember once uh, Frank Renton was conducting um, Kirk and Tillich at the, at the Nationals. And the Albert Hall is, of course, uh, notoriously difficult to play in. Uh, and, you know, the first time you play there, you, you think you're playing outside because it's such a huge space and there's no feedback from the room. Uh, and Frank did a very clever thing in that. I can't remember which year it was or the piece, but it was, I remember, it, I think I must say thanks to him because he inspired me to try different things. And he had the band spread all over, almost all over the Albert Hall stage with about a meter of space in between each individual. And they sounded great. And I think they got in the first, you know, half dozen or something like that, which for Kirky was, you know, a huge thing. They thought they'd won the world championships just being in the first, being in the frame kind of thing. And I'm sure that had a bearing on it. The the judges could probably hear a lot more um, in that space. So it's 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 also space related in a sense. You know, what kind of space are you playing in? But uh, we we enjoy playing in the. It certainly changed River City's sound completely by 
by um, opening up like that. It's good for the audience because they can see more faces. Um, they're not they're not people on the back hiding, you know, and playing into human mutes. Um, <laughs> and uh, and the coordinate section sounds absolutely magnificent because you know nobody there's no hiding place. They're they're right in they're right in front of me, so they know that they've got to deliver the goods, and they do. It's so interesting because here, you know, we don't have a <clears throat> we don't have a huge brass band tradition in the state of Florida. We have had we've had a lot of like great moments, but it's not like a story tradition. There's not four brass bands in every big city or anything like that. Um, and so a lot of times, like when we started, of course, like all of the directors we've ever had were wind band directors turned brass band directors, and they've all been woodwind players, and that's by my design because I have no sympathy for chops and I don't want them to have sympathy for chops either. So like, they're like, oh, you need to change your read. Like they're not gonna have that sympathy, right? And so I just get really like Dr. Demeglio, who's my director, uh, she's the associate director of bands at USF, phenomenal director, clarinet player though, and phenomenal musician. But of course she's used to wind band. And and so you, she's like, you why did why does brass band set up this way? I don't like this. And then she has that argument. We have the argument. I'm like, well, I don't know, but Black Dyke doesn't. They've done it for years, and so therefore, yeah, the University of South Florida, <laughs> not San Francisco. Well, I just but wanted yeah, to make like, sure because when you use, you use letters on the, you know, people. Yeah, she know. was the, she was supposed to be before she got COVID. She was going to be the only female director at NABA, um, but. Uh, She's like arguing. She's like, why do we do this? And I'm like, I don't know, but Corey seems to win championships with it. So they know what they're doing. So I don't know if we just do what they're doing. And then, you know, then you get into something like a dove descending or something where they tell you, they dictate what you're supposed to do. And then it's like, oh, why are brass bands so corny <laughs> with their, with their <laughs> staging? And I'm like, there's no pleasing you all. <laughs> right. Oh, man. It, so uh, I wanted to ask just because uh, now now I'm friends with you on Facebook, James. Uh, how was Georgia? Oh, very good. I was working at the University of North North Georgia with a a dear friend and former student of mine, Adam Fry. Uh, Adam uh, had secret tuba lessons with me uh, when he was at the Royal Northern College of Music, but they had to be in secret because his teacher, who shall remain nameless. <laughs> Uh, was very down on anybody who wanted to double on tuba and euphoria. Or, or I, I should, I should add, I was told to never touch a trombone, and yeah. I was told that I would, I would, I would be expelled if I touched a trombone. So that same professor who shall remain nameless uh, said that to me. Yeah, <laughs> and he said the same thing to uh, the trombone behind you. <laughs> okay. He said the same thing to uh, Aaron Tindall as well, and. Uh, and and others, I think there's a, there's a there's a there's a club of people uh, who were forbidden to double. So, uh, but Adam used to come for uh, secret tuba lessons, and uh, he's he's been a friend for oh since then, which is going to be twenty years or more now. And we get on smashing. And he comes up to Duquesne and helps me from time to time with my euphoniums. Although I play the euphonium, you know, it's my first instrument. And uh, although he plays the tuba, it's not his first instrument. So it's a good exchange. And uh, we had uh, a nice concert. I played a recital with Adam. Adam played a, uh, a few pieces, so did I. And then we played um, a concert of uh, music with, for his tuba and euphonium uh, group. Actually, it's got trombones in it as well. So he calls it a low brass collective. That's about 15, 16 people in it. And it was a lot of fun. Uh, but at the same time, I had, um, 
had group lessons. I taught master classes and also a class on the music business because um, one of the things that uh, I've done uh, since I've been to the United States is that recently, uh, the last couple of years, I was chosen as one of Pittsburgh's top uh, 20 business leaders uh, from all businesses. And uh, just two, last year or the year before, uh, Musical America uh, voted me as one of the top 30 music uh, administrators in the United States, which is a huge honor. Uh, I don't know who nominated me, but it must be crazy, but uh, somebody did. <laughs> so thanks whoever you are, if you're listening to this, thanks very much. And so I, you know, I could help the music business class, I think, with a few insights to how to how to make it because you know that old joke, uh, you know, euphonium is a Greek word meaning unemployed, uh, need, <laughs> need not be true. Right. Uh, and and for tuba players as well, if it, you know if you're playing for six years, you're playing orchestral excerpts, then you're probably you're probably betting on getting an orchestral job. That's that's a long shot. That's a hundred to one bet. Mm-hmm. Because there, there are, particularly in this country, there are, there are few jobs. Recently, we have had some jobs come up, which is great, both in LA, there's been one in Winnipeg, there's been a few jobs in the regional orchestras and also in the military. And there's some, I think, because of retirements, there's going to be a few euphonium jobs coming up in the, in the services here, mm-hmm. maybe as many as three coming up. Uh, there's one up just now in, in uh, Pershing's own Marine Band. And uh, so I'm preparing students for that. But at the same time, I try and prepare them for doing other things. For example, they could perhaps go and do small concerts in seniors' homes. They could do, you know, create a group and, and try and sell the group. They could, there's all kinds of things that we can do with our music to, to use that awful word, to monetize it. Teaching is, of course, a very important part of that portfolio. So the whole thing about a portfolio career is that it has to have lots of things in it. And, and, and I think if you're engaged by the music industry and in the music industry, then that's really satisfying life. You know, when I when I look at the things that I have to do uh, just today, um, I'll be here. I was here in the office at eight o'clock at River City Brass, 8 a.m. I'll finish at 9.15. There's one break of 15 minutes that involves administration, teaching, conducting and even arranging um, all, all all in one day and that's actually fantastic that's fantastic because the variety of things that i'm that i'm allowed to do is uh is incredible to me and uh, i feel so fortunate but i've created some of these opportunities and or i've seen opportunities and i've grabbed them with both hands mm-hmm. and um so i think i think music business is an important factor particularly for low brass players if 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 your university isn't teaching that to you, then you should come to Duquesne. And I I feel like, you know, growing up playing euphonium and Aaron, you can contribute, you know, if if you found the same, you know, I've I heard from the beginning that there's there's no future in euphonium, there's no, you're never gonna be employed. And I made a decision sometime in like high school, I think that whenever somebody said that that wasn't going to be possible, I'd add something, a little phrase onto the end of it. And in my head, I would add the way you did it. (laughs) Because, and then I'd look at what they were trying 
And, and I saw over and over again, the things that you were talking about, trying to go for these very few traditional jobs and for the people who win those like awesome, great. Um, but I make, I make just as much on a children's book at this point as I do on my gigs. So, you know, I've, I think I've, I've tried to make my way through finding things in music that weren't being done that seemed to have a market. Yeah. And, and who, who would have known, you know, a children's book is now available worldwide. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> it, 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 it's that, such an interesting... you're, a, you're an example to, you're an example to all euphonium players, but not just the euphonium players. If you think that classical Western classical music is about 2%, this, this is real numbers, about 2% of the music industry, which is one of the biggest industries worldwide. Now, if you, if you're teaching someone, if you're aiming somebody just for that 2%, that is, that's a long shot bet, considering that there'll be 50, 60 people more applying for those that one job that mm -hmm. comes up. I mean, I was lucky when I entered the music profession in 1974, there weren't that many people around. I mean, I, I, I auditioned for three jobs, Birmingham Symphony, Welsh Opera, Welsh and now called the Welsh National Orchestra, but it's the Welsh, BBC Welsh Orchestra. They all came up at the same time and I won all three auditions and uh, picked the one with the most money. But, you know, there were maybe 20 of us doing that, those auditions, the mm. same 20, but now there'd be 200. Yeah. And then, then, then you know, it, it, I wouldn't say it's a lottery, but it's, uh, you know, it makes it much more difficult. And then, yeah, then there's the whole. I mean, there's a bit a deeper topic there. The way that auditions are are conducted, you know, behind a screen, and it's supposed to be fair. But you know, is it? You know, if 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 180 if 180 men go in, and 20 women, or 10 women, and another 10 from other minorities, the the math makes that unfair. And if it was a horse race, you're still going to bet on the a member of the 180s. You know the the, the odds of it. Are, mm -hmm. So that's something I've tried to try to iron out with um, my contracts here at River City Brass to mm -hmm. make sure that we have represent a band that is representative of the audience for which it is performing. Mm -hmm. That's important, and it's hard because the the musicians' union make it hard for employers to do that. And uh, how I do it is that uh, I make sure that uh, substitute players and extra players, of which I have total control, come from the groups that otherwise might not be represented. And like that, we, we try and level the playing field a little bit. But this, was... is, a very, this is a deep, a deep water subject now. So if mm -hmm. you want to steer back to the shore, that's fine. <laughs> I. I personally, I enjoyed having the entire uh, dressing room to myself when I subbed with River City. <laughs> I was like, I walked in and I was like, there's no one in here. Yeah. <laughs> Spread out. <laughs> yeah, all your stuff everywhere. <laughs> well, um, we are Aaron just texted all of us we have a little chat that goes on during for those of you who are listening we have a little chat that goes on that you have no clue about well now you do um 
that we can communicate kind of behind the scenes during uh, during the episode. And Aaron has said that we have enough material to cut at any time. So are we going to do a what? What was that James, look for? James, did you just hear that? Did you? I think I just heard a shattering of the fourth wall. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we, I've officially shattered the fourth wall. We we yeah, don't. I don't have a, I don't have a question for the day. It took it took my last. I'm coming off of the uh, a week. <laughs> I had I had a concerto competition, my recital, and uh, a job interview all in four days of each other. So I am uh, spent. So I have no questions. <laughs> I have no further questions for now. <laughs> well, that's, we should we should say a good close a good uh, closer for this episode is congratulating Aaron on doing his final uh, recital as a student. Good. And just pertinent to this conversation, I did on four different instruments. <laughs> and I spoke about uh, uh, portfolio careers as well. So like everything you, James, that you just talked about and the like not playing other instruments and stuff like that. Um, and there were also two women composers on my on the recital by accident, by the way. It just happened. Uh, well, so once you know, once you know about good recital. composers, once you know about good composers, and you know, and you've you've taken the steps to familiarize yourself with some of these minority composers, then I think you just realize which ones are good, and then they just become part of your your composers that you pull repertoire from. You know what I right, mean? Right. Absolutely. I just also right. just don't like playing the same stuff all the time. Yeah. You know, right. like, you know, that everybody else does. Um, but yeah, but thank you. Thank you. I'm so excited to never have to do a recital as a student ever again. Congratulations. <laughs> Thanks. Um, and just for those of you who are, you know, new learning about River City and everything that it needs to do, and also James, James Gourlay, um, of course, links and all that sort of a thing will be in the description of the YouTube and in the descriptions. But hey, James, thank you so much for coming yeah, and chatting with you. us again. Again. <laughs> uh, pleasure. It's a pleasure. You guys have a great day. It's nice talking to you as always. You can call me anytime. Uh,